the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back. 602-508-0960 is the number. And um, we, uh, we were talking really about rereading old books now with the eyes and brains of adults as opposed to when we first read them. And I'd love to have that discussion with y'all. Rob had just recommended rereading Conscience of a Conservative by Barry Goldwater and taking, I think it's what is the second to last or last chapter, which is on the Soviet menace, replacing Soviet with China. And uh, you've got a book that's uh, as contemporary now as it was, what, 60 or so years ago. Um, I'll come back to that in a moment. Some other books I have been rereading that I think are important uh, to understand the times we're in. I think we would have avoided these times had we taken those readings more seriously back then. Um, But before I do that, Jack Dorsey has announced he's, um, he's resigning his position as CEO of Twitter. And in his resignation letter, he actually states that it is very rare for a CEO and founder to put his ego aside in favor of the company. And I thought, even rarer still now that you're mentioning it. What, what, do, you, do you get the credit for being selfless if you have to point out that you're being selfless? That's just the smallest part. But, you know, I've been fascinated by language, especially more lately and, and, and the abuse, uses and abuses of it. So I kind of zeroed in on that a little bit. But uh, I, do we expect anything better from Twitter with a change of uh, with a change of regime? I particularly do not uh, predict anything different. But I did notice a tweet that I have to um, tell you about from our friend Wilford Riley, uh, our professor at uh, university at uh, Kentucky State University, I think it is. And he was talking about what a really bad job at white supremacy this country is doing when you look at some of the top corporations in America and who their CEOs are, particularly the corporations that shape not only our language but our way of life and our learning. Twitter's CEO is now Parag Agarwal. Google is Sundar Pichai. Microsoft is Satya Nadella. IBM is Arvind Krishna. Adobe is Shantu Narayan. VMware is Raghu Raghuram, on and on it goes. And he said, for our country, the United States, whose South Asian population is 2%, yeah, we're doing a very, very poor job at, um, at, uh, at white supremacy. I'm getting a message built that our guest is standing by for a call. So for whatever it's worth, if you want to try him again and mention 
the uh, problems we had. We had a technical difficulty reaching uh, guest uh, Roger Kimball. Uh, let me uh, tell you that uh, we'll get him on shortly, and I did want to talk to him. There is There are few who understand the English language as well as Roger Kimball, a man of a man of, of letters. He is the publisher and editor of one of the most erudite journals in the country, The New Criterion. He's also the publisher of uh, Encounter uh, Books. So um, we'll, we'll get him on shortly, and we'll talk about some of these old books, as well as his most recent piece about Ilan Omar. I spoke about that controversy earlier in the show in my monologue, there's a fight between Lauren Boebert of Colorado, right? She's of Colorado, and Ilan Omar of Minnesota, uh, Minneapolis area of Minnesota, because of a, um, shall we just say, tasteless joke Lauren uh, Boebert made about her. Uh, Boebert made about her. But what we can say is that Congresswoman Boebert apologized and has sought a face-to-face meeting. She's not in defensive mode. She is not trying to defend the poor joke. What is interesting to me and what Roger <coughs> points out a little bit in his column is that there has never been any effort other um, than by Republicans to actually sanction Ilan Omar, who was not joking when she slurred Israel as an evil country and trotted out anti-Semitic bigotry about Jews and money, or made fun and light of 9-11, or stated we are too uptight about organizations like al-Qaeda, or that Donald Trump was a fascist, a racist, and a tyrant. In fact, for all that, she was given money and endorsements from the leadership of the Democratic Party, including from Nancy Pelosi, over and against fellow Democrats who were challenging her on her anti-Americanism socialism, and bigotry in the Minnesota primaries. The Democratic leadership stuck by and stuck with Ilan Omar, and in doing so, teaching her an important lesson that she never needs ever to apologize, and she can continue doing exactly what she's doing. She can continue saying exactly what she was saying. She was rewarded by her party for saying all those things, after all, and to no consequence. No consequence. Um, that's, that's kind of the situation we live in. But I imagine, because the Democrats play for keeps, that Congresswoman uh, Bober, I am guessing, will lose her uh, committee assignments. They, uh, the Democrats play for keeps. We, the Republicans, as some of you like to point out, particularly uh, regular listener and caller Doug, uh, regularly like to point out um, that we just don't play by their rules. We just we, we play by Marcus of Queensbury rules and they apply by the rules of the gutter. It actually matters. It actually matters because these aren't boxing matches these, this isn't the sweet science, as it were, that you see in boxing. These are fights over politics and policy that have the greatest of implications. And the Democrats have done a fantastic job, a fantastic job 
of defending and shielding their own while at the same time painting in uh, bold colors uh, the, the, the entire structure and edifice of political dialogue in America, which begins with, begins with the notion that most, if not all, but certainly most Republicans or conservatives are bigots or racists. It starts there and puts the Republican immediately on the defensive. Any of you have this at your Thanksgiving meals? Immediately on the defensive to prove he or she is not one of those Republicans. Immediately the first thing in any political discussion between a Republican and a Democrat is imputed to the Republican that he or she has to distance himself from the mainstream of the party. I understand a little bit from a philosophical view why this is so. It's so because there is a fair unanimity, a fair unanimity on policy agreements and policy prescriptions in the Republican Party that haven't varied all that much since the 1960s. The Democrats have tried to show that they have. They haven't varied all that much. If there's a, if there's a significant difference in Republican Party platforms from the 1960s to now, it has, if anything of significance to do with who's more committed to certain economic policies. And by economic policies, I'm really talking taxes and trade, not things that should go to the heart and soul, really, of a party or the American polity, but really economic measures that matter more on the margins than they do at the essence, whereas the Democratic Party truly has changed. It truly has changed from the 1960s in a way that they do not want you to believe. We spoke a little bit last week marking the anniversary of John Kennedy's death. Look at the things John Kennedy said. Look at the things he stood for. Look at the things he would not stand for. Look at the things even Robert Kennedy said and stood for and look at the things they would not stand for. Here's the best example I can give you. Maybe we'll talk. Are we talking with Roger in the next segment? Maybe when we talk with Roger in the next segment, I can bring this up. But in the 1970s, early 70s, late 60s, when the Black Panthers and the Weather Underground were on the march, you did not have fundraisers held and sponsored by George McGovern or Birch Bayh or any of or Hubert Humphrey or any of the De- or Sergeant Shriver or any of the Democratic Party mainstays. Today, their equivalents, you do. We'll have Roger Kimball coming right up. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. As I was mentioning in the previous segment, if you need a walking definition of a man of letters, you can't do better than our guest, Roger Kimball. He's the editor and publisher of The New Criterion, also publisher of Encounter Books, an author in his own right, and uh, the uh, author of a great op-ed in a current issue of the Epic Times, Rude Words Spoken About Ilan Omar, Fake Outrage, outrage and an Un- needed apology. Mr. Kimball, welcome back. Oh, it's great to uh, great to be with you. Sorry Thank you. The, uh, it's great confusion to... earlier. But... Well, it's a confusing time we live in. 
indeed. Can I tell you something I said in my monologue and let you disagree, agree, Absolutely. or take it from there? I was talking about this effort to sanction uh, Lauren Boebert that you write about. I said there is no effort to sanction Ilan Omar, who was not joking, not joking when she called Israel an evil country, trotted out anti-Semitic slurs about Jews and money or made fun in light of 9-11 or stated we are too uptight about organizations like al-Qaeda. Never. In fact, right? For saying all those things, the Democratic Party leadership reendorsed her against primary challenges. That's the world we live in. That is the world we live in, Seth. And, you know, the, um, the, the the truth of the matter is that Ilan Omar, though not in the Democratic Party leadership, actually represents uh, the what you might call the spiritual configuration of the party. Here is somebody who fled from Somalia uh, to a refugee camp in, I think, Kenya, was rescued by the, by the United States, brought here, educated uh, at public expense, um, uh, uh, you know, was elected to some state office in Minnesota and is now, now serves in the United States Congress. You, any normal person would be, uh, wake up every morning and thank God for the United States uh, and be so grateful. But somebody, I think my friend Ben Weingarten actually wrote a book called uh, American Ingrate yep. about Elon Omar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it's it's. It, I mean, she really does epitomize something very disturbing about the soul of uh, the, the the progressive, so-called progressive impulse in this country. It is violently uh, ungrateful, violently anti-Semitic, wildly anti-American, and uh, it just epitomizes so much. That is is wrong with with um, with certain aspects of, of this country. And I mean, you 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 know, I, I believe it was Elon Omar who said when when taxed with the the terror attacks of of nine eleven, which killed almost three thousand people and cost you know, billions of dollars in damage. Oh, somebody did something. Yeah, Some people did something. I, I mean, that's like that's like referring to like I think it was CNN refers to the um, to, to the uh, uh, terrorist act in Wisconsin. Uh, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly. What what Waukesha? Is that yeah, I, I, I've been corrected a few times myself, but I'm going with Waukesha. Waukesha. Waukesha is what I'm told it is. Waukesha is what I'm told. Waukesha. Okay. Yeah. If, it's, if it's good yeah. enough for you, it's good enough for me. <laughs> okay. They said, you know, I, you know, this tragedy caused caused by an SUV. Yeah, a car crash by an SUV. You know, so I mean, we would need to we would need to supplement Aristotle's five four, four 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 causes with a fifth one. You know, what is this? This was caused by an SUV? No, it wasn't. It was it was caused by a crazed, ungrateful, uh, uh, anti-American, BLM-supporting black man who weaved his SUV in and out of a Christmas parade to cause as much mayhem as possible. Why can't we say that? Well, he Why killed three more times that? the people that uh, Kyle Rittenhouse did uh, without any uh, justification, and the story is dead. It's gone, Roger. It's it's gone yes. for the same reason yes. that any criticism of Ilan Omar is. Maybe you can help me with this, because they have figured out, Ilan Omar particularly, and this, this woke progressive effort, they've done a really good job of doing something interesting with rhetoric. 
they have been able to figure out a way to lob any grenade they want, and any response to them on that grenade they claim is a personal affront based on their race or ethnicity to thus shut down the criticism. It's a very interesting rhetorical trick they figured out. And we yes, play well, by it. it. We listen to yes, it. Yes, well, that is, that's the problem. Your second point is, is the real problem. I mean, I've noticed for for a long time now that the, the left has a virtual monopoly on the rhetoric of virtue. Mm-hmm. This is something that's been true since the time of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, when mm-hmm. he was always going on about virtue. He meant his emotion of virtue, that mm-hmm. he felt virtuous. And that was what counted whether it actually, whether his actions in the world actually were good. That didn't count. What mattered was his uh, his subjective feeling of virtue. That's the way the, the left is. But you're quite right. It's a it's a it's a um, it's <clears throat> a two tiered uh, approach to this stuff. When you when when they do something to you, it's 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 virtuous. It's a, it's a matter of of calling attention to an injustice. When you respond, then they talk about your motive. Yep. And that is that is that is that that psychological. Um, uh, move that is that is it, uh, it, the enemy of truth, among other things, and something that that we really need to wake up to and resist. And wh- one way of resisting it is, I, I, I'm sorry that Lauren Boebert uh, uh, felt called upon to apologize. Yes, that is the we, essence of your op-ed. Yeah, yeah. Let's get to that point. I, that, that's so important there, because my view is, once you start down that drain, it's never deep enough. Yes. Well, see, I mean, her aides must have told her that she needed to do this. But, but no, I, I think that she should uh, redouble it. And, you know, uh, it, it, and you're quite right. You began by saying, why, why is Lauren Boebert sanctioned and, and Elon Omar is not? What, what, what magic circle does this, uh, does this um, Hamas-sympathizing, anti-American, uh, <laughs> incestuous person uh, what what magic circle does she occupy that she is in, that she is exempt from criticism? There there is none, and we we need to call attention to that uh, the, the nakedness of this emperor or empress. And uh, you know politics has always been a, a, a rhetorical free for all. And if you um, if you enter it and uh, with the idea that you are not going to be speaking frankly then you will just be consumed. You'll be eaten alive. And it would be too bad. I don't know you know, very much about Lauren Boebert. I, I kind of like the cut of her jib. Yeah, she seems I, very I think we're in the same she, exact spot. I don't either, but I kind of yeah. like what I, I've liked the yeah, cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, she, yeah. She's, she's amusing and she's, you know, feisty. And you know, that's what makes her uh, a, a, a valuable addition to the to the public and, and why the Democrats time. feel the need to silence her so strenuously. Absolutely. Let, Ab- let me do this. Absolutely. I, I got to take a quick commercial break. Can I keep you one, uh, one more segment? Because I yeah, want to sure. explore something with you about the changing times. Let me th- let me tell you what I was saying in the previous segment before you joined us. I'd love your your thought yeah. on this correction, okay. even if if necessary. But if someone wants to know how the Democratic Party changed. You know, in the 60s and 70s, when the, when, the, when the Black Panthers and the Weather Underground were at the height of their activity, you never saw support from the McGoverns and the Humphreys and the Shrivers, the Birch Buys, right. the leadership of the Democratic Party. They wanted nothing to do with that. Today, right. they raise funds for them. Can we talk about that? When right. we, uh, we'll sure. be right back. Absolutely. With Ro- thank Absolutely. you. We will be right back with Roger 
Kimball, editor and publisher of the new Criterion. Check out his latest at theepictimes.com. We'll be right back. Fake outrage and an unneeded apology from uh, Roger Kimball's uh, op-ed in the current Epic Times. Roger Kimball is, of course, uh, the publisher of Encounter Books and the editor and publisher of The New Criterion. You want to be smart, you read what Roger writes. Roger, right before the break, I was just talking with you about a side issue to the Silan Omar controversy. <laughs> And that is the Democratic Party's relationship to her, to it, to leftism. I think my history's right in the late 60s, early 70s, when people like Leonard Bernstein were throwing shindigs for the violent uh, radical Marxists. Yeah. McGoverns, Humphreys, Shrivers, Kennedys, they wanted nothing to do with it. Today we see the Democratic Party leadership raising bail funds for these types and endorsing them over and against their more moderate opponents. That marks a shift, doesn't it? Worth talking about? Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, no, I, no, I think you're right. I mean, McGovern was pretty far left. I, I can't remember his position on the Black Panthers. I don't believe he was a, a guest at the Bernstein's that night. No, the famous party. Right. But, um, but yes, I mean, what happened to people like Soup Jackson or Hubert Humphrey? I mean, we probably, or I would probably disagree with many of the things that they stood for, you know, they, their view of the welfare state, yep. their view of sure. the size of government, sure. all kinds of things like that. But no one would deny that they were patriots. No one would, no one would deny that, uh, that they believed in a robust foreign policy uh, for the United States. No one would deny that they, uh, you know, they, they believed uh, in the United States uh, as, you know, the last best hope of mankind, as, as Lincoln put it. Can, can anyone say that of the leadership of the Democratic Party today, of Chuck Schumer, of Jerry the Wadler Nadler, of Nancy Pelosi? And, and of course, those are just the, the leaders. Then you, then you go to people, you know, like, like AOC or Elon Omar. I mean, these people are, they're, they're not just leftists. They, they are anti-American uh, sort of quasi-Marxist ideologue who hate this country. They hate this country. And, they, you know, a friend of mine was uh, wrote me today saying, the really strange thing about Elon Omar is uh, what it says about uh, uh, our regime. He's a Straussian, so he likes the word regime. Uh, you know, wh why, did we, why did we bring her here in the first place? Um, you know, maybe Elon Omar is right that the United States really does need to reconsider its foreign policy, but not quite in the way in which she understands yeah, it. Right. Why should why why should we why should we bring people to this country and pay for them? You know, with, with your money and my money, uh, you know, we, we house them, we educate them, we 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 bring them up. Uh, you know, uh, and they're vipers. Really, they they hate the country. And the idea then that that our government. Um, that the people who are in charge of this country should welcome her into our governing structure, I find absolutely bizarre. It's, you know, Robert Jackson, the Supreme Court Justice, once said that the, the, uh, the Bill of Rights was not a suicide pact. That's right. Uh, and I, th I, think he was, I think he was right about that. He, was, uh, uh, we, we've lost touch at least some you know, major aspects of our governing structure have lost touch 
with basic ideas about you know, how we should live, uh, how we should structure our government, and what our fundamental um, uh, commitments uh, to this country and to one another are. And we, it, it's, uh, it's a very dangerous situation we're in. I, I was saying to, uh, to someone just the other day that it seems to me that we're in about 1857 mm. uh, in, in the divide, divided nature of the country. That is to say, um, you know, the country was headed toward a civil war in the 1850s. 1857, it was, things were getting pretty, pretty Tabasco, and, and that's where we are now. We don't have a single issue. But we, we have a sort of suite of issues. And part of it is, you know, who, who is going to govern us? What kind of, what kind of policy do we want to be in? Are we, do, are we going to surrender um, our commitment to things like individual liberty and limited government and, and, and uh, all of that sort of stuff to, uh, to people who hate that and want to turn us into a third world country? That is the decision that we have to make right now. You know, whenever someone talks about, uh, Roger, whenever someone brings up uh, the Civil War, the 1850s, the 1860s, mm-hmm. I, I feel compelled to add a point that I will keep keep adding until until my dying breath because it's, it's I think, super instructive. I think it's very instructive, which is if you want the language that you get from the modern progressives who like to lecture this country's population about how evil America is, including its founding, it's not new language. It's not a new analysis. You can find that self-same exact history and analysis in the Democratic Party of the 1850s and 60s and in the Confederacy of the United States of America. They held the exact same view of our founding that today's modern left does, that all men are created equal was a lie. The founders didn't mean it, and we were built on the slave basis. That was the Confederacy. That's today's progressive movement as well. I just feel compelled to always point that out. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's a great irony, Seth, that, that we, for reasons that I do not fully understand, uh, it goes back a little bit to what, what you were talking about earlier and, and rhetoric. I said, you know, the, the, the left has a virtual monopoly on the rhetoric of virtue. Why that should be is, 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 is mysterious. But people, uh, they always forget the Democrats, after all, they were the party of slavery mm-hmm. in the 19th, 19th century. They were the party of segregation and Jim Crow, uh, you know, after the Civil War. Uh, they were the, now they're the party of a kind of neo-segregation um, when they still want to define everything in terms of race. Mm-hmm. I mean, what we are seeing, this is the, the Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. movement, the CRT, all that stuff. It is a, an explicit rejection of Martin Luther King's idea that we should judge people not by their, the color of their skin, but by their character, by what they do. Uh, and uh, it, it, to me, that is a... Um, it's profoundly anti-American, of course, but but it's it's also a, a morally obnoxious idea. And the fact that it's not just politicians, the fact that so much of corporate America has signed on to this um, obnoxious ideology is very very disturbing. We you know we just published a book at Encounter called "The Dictatorship of Woke Capital" mm. by Stephen Sukup, and I, I I recommend it to your to your uh, listeners, it, it really it goes through and shows how 
so many you know major corporations have signed on to this stuff. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's a betrayal of the fundamental principles upon which this country was built, and the principles which the self uh, the self uh, same Robert H. Jackson adhered to and lived by as a Democrat. You'll you'll recall yes. his dissent in the Korematsu case, which is a beautiful thing, much like the um, dissents in the Dred Scott decision or in the Harlan dissent of Plessy versus Ferguson. It's the Democrats today who would side with those majorities. Shame on them. Roger yeah. Kimball, we have nothing to apologize for, and uh, I just want to thank you for saying that, writing that, and for all that you do. Yeah, it's great to chat. You betcha. Roger Kimball, folks, check his work out over at the Epic Times or anywhere else he writes prolifically and widely. He is the editor and publisher of The New Criterion and of Encounter Books. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Lots of emails. What books am I rereading? Yes, Conscience of a Conservative is one of them, published in nineteen sixty by Barry Goldwater. I'm in the midst of rereading Up from Liberalism, published the year before by William Buckley, and I am rereading Witness, published just before that, by Whitaker Chambers. They explain a lot. One of the things I've learned in reading uh, these conservative tomes from the 50s and 60s is some I made mention of the other day, how much, how dominant throughout the 60s and 70s the charges of McCarthyism were that Joe McCarthy wasn't even alive anymore, but how the Democrats in the left at the time weaponized anyone who was anti-communist or said anyone who stated anti-communist sentiment was, you know, either a closet or a neo-McCarthyite. It was an interesting effort. They milked that for a good 20 years, uh, if they beyond its shelf life, uh, two decades anyway, if 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 they stopped, and here we would need some kind of expert in political psychology, if they stopped, which they did, it only must be as a result of thus having become the new McCarthyites themselves, tarring and feathering as disloyal to certain virtues and this country and to enlightened thinking, really, anyone who is a Republican or conservative. Roger Kimball was talking about how the Democrats have weaponized the language of the virtues, and it wasn't that hard for them to do. Truth used to be a virtue. All they had to do, and they've done it really well, all they've had to do is take the word truth and attach a personal pronoun to it, which is the word my, my truth. They have personalized truth, which used to be an objective standard to an elevated status of being more important when it is based on a subjective standard. The problem with these subjective standards is there's 331 possible flavors of truth once you do that. And I have no more monopoly on 
the truth in saying that the TV is full of, you know, is is full of. Uh, let take any example you want. The TV is full of news, sports, and entertainment. And my producer Bill would say, "Well, my truth is, it's just full of." entertainment or it's just full of sports you can do this with anything my truth can be that my radio show is on from three to six bill could easily say his truth is something else ilan omar could say my truth is that this country is systemically racist when the truth is that this systemically racist country brought her in to it not because it thought she would contribute to it. She was too young for us to know anything about her. Why did it do it? It did it because it was a good country that tried to do right by refugees that weren't its responsibility because they and everyone else in the world wants to come here because at the time they and everyone else in the world even today still knows what Ilan Omar does not which is that this is a good country. That is the truth. Her truth is that it isn't, but her truth crashes into the reality that the systemically, the systemically racist country in one of the whitest states has not only elected and reelected her, but has also put her on the most prized committees in the highest levels of leadership of this government. But her truth is we're still bigoted. Okay. When you say my truth, understand what you're doing. You're saying that there's also the truth out there, something separate, and it is separate. There are children still in critical condition from the Waukesha attack after six people were already murdered, and the media are just done. No investigation into the background, no search for a motive, no panel segments speculating on the racist views and where he may have gotten them and what may have inspired them. According to one author, because why? Because why? Well, it's not really because of the more important news of the Omicron variant but it did become a useful thing to pop up, didn't it? As C.S. Lewis says, and as I spoke about in the opening segment, the use of fashion and thought is to distract the attention of men from the real dangers. We direct the fashionable outcry of each generation against those vices of which it is least in danger and fix its approval on the virtue nearest to that which we are trying to make endemic. The game is to have everyone running around with fire extinguishers whenever there's a flood and all crowd to the side of the boat, which is already nearly under water. Yes, don't be distracted from the real dangers, folks. I know there's an effort to be so done by the media. That is why they give you crisis after crisis. That is why they give you story after story that bears no relevance or relationship to the facts. But don't be distracted from the real dangers. Don't be distracted by claims of dog whistling that doesn't exist when they are blaring hate 
and vitriol from megaphones. Don't ever make that confusion, though they will try to do it to you. They will try to confuse you. They want you confused. Keep your head straight. Keep your eyes focused. Call out racism where it exists. Call out baloney where it doesn't. And put away those fire extinguishers when it's a flood we're dealing with. I'm Seth Liebson. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. Class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 